everyone, and welcome back to, I know, right, uh, my podcast for recruiters and for all things that recruiters care about. And this podcast, because it's summertime and the living is easy, even though the recruiting isn't, is about what top producers are reading. Okay, now, why would I do a podcast on what recruiters are reading since we know no one reads anymore and everybody's on an iPad watching Netflix or looking at TED Talks? Well, actually, it's not true. Like anything else with millennials, they get a bad rap. So uh, the latest Pew Research says that millennials are the most likely age group to read. Yeah, most likely, more than the previous generations. They're also the most likely to visit libraries. Now, they may be vaping in the restrooms, but they're the most likely to visit libraries. And even more heartening for those of you who read, uh, the Hooked reading app on Apple and Android is the most popular reading app on either one of those platforms, and it's geared toward 14 to 20-year-olds. People read. They read for the same reason they've always read. We read to know we're not alone. So here's what I've done. If you uh, if you look on the links on this podcast, you'll see reading lists from a variety of top producers uh, that I respect. Um, and we now have conversations that you're going to be able to listen to with some of the more passionate members. We've got Danny Sarge, past president of Pinnacle, Robin Bland, who's been a member of Pinnacle for many years, Michael Petrak, Dan Martineau, and an up-and-coming Pinnacle person, um, soon to be in Pinnacle, Emily Audibert, who is also, along with a passionate reader, uh, someone who writes for her own blog, uh, which is called Musings of a Millennial Chick. So we're going to have conversations with people about what they're actually reading. Note how passionate they are about what they read. And I hope when you listen to this podcast, you'll get a sense for what you should be reading, a sense for how top recruiters read, but also how top recruiters think about what they're reading. Okay, enjoy the podcast. Let's start with Danny Sarge. Okay, so welcome back. So summer reading by top recruiters. So we are with Danny Sarge, who is not only a, a top producer uh, and a past president of the Pinnacle Society, uh, and also a, a writer of various blogs and magazine articles, but more importantly, an English major from UPenn back in the day. So he's absolutely qualified to talk about summer reading. How are you, Danny? I'm fine, Dan. Thanks for calling. Yeah, and you're also just back from Israel. Like, when, was, when did you get uh, back? I just got back last night. So uh, wow. your, your question about reading could be adjusted somewhat, but it was an amazing trip. <laughs> so Jews go to Israel. Christians go to Rome. Where do atheists go? Do they just stay at home? And, and <laughs> what do they do? It, it seems unfair. <laughs> It's Maybe. fair. It's a fair question, but uh, but uh, it's it obviously one of the fat to tell you or the others the that the many religions that are all in uh, around Israel. I mean, it's obviously part of the You're right. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That is a cool part, and it is on my ever-growing bucket list of places to go. So, all right. So, you did you do any reading on it? I know you sent me your reading list, which was fascinating. Did uh, did any of the stuff that was on your list? Were you reading it on the trip, or was it before the trip? Now, this is all stuff before the trip, uh, yeah, but I've got okay. a whole other list of things to go back to. And now that I've been to Israel, I guess we can start with, and I've ever read uh, Missioner Snuff. James Missioner wrote a book about, right. called The Source about the history of Israel, obviously up until the time that it, that it was written. So that's a new one added to the bucket list for just another 800-page book or something like that when I get around to it. So, right. uh, I'll so make let's, sure let's, to read that down the road. 
Yeah, Missioners is tough, man. They're a big book. So let's talk first about um, – I'm interested in everybody's, like, approach to this. Um, and some people sent me um, – well, it was clear that they spend their summer trying to, like, motivate themselves to be great recruiters. So there's lots of self-help books and sales books and all that stuff. And then there's other people that are still trying to get through – um, some opus that they were supposed to read in high school and never did and still feel guilty about it. But you you take more of a, I want to read books that take me away from my concerns about life, right? That's more your approach? Yes. Um, so uh, my mom passed away, as you know, uh, a number of years mm. ago, and she, she was the most avid reader that I know. She was reading two or three books at a time. So as a, a bit of a resolution, I'd, I'd gone through gaps where I would read and then not read like many people. And now my, my resolution, which I've been able to keep, is to always be reading a good book, and which means I'm more discerning. So if I don't like something, uh, I'm much more likely to then put it down and say, sorry, it didn't hook me. There's just too many good things to read. So, right. uh, so I, 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 I try to read something that is interesting politically, as you saw from the list we'll talk about. I, I love thrillers and spy books, but only when they're good. So I try to be picky about that. And, uh, and then, you know, your stuff candidly got me into memoirs and I've read a few, uh, good ones since, since yours. So, uh, yeah. I, I, those have been the three big genres, I guess, that I've been reading. Yeah, so I've, I've never read thrillers, and and I guess I I misunderstood what they really were about because, uh, like, I mean I realize there's a difference between like uh, thrillers that are horrifying thrillers like the Stephen King genre, you know, um, and more of the whodunit sort of thrillers. But I guess my thing was always like a book to me was like now I'm doing some serious stuff I'm reading, and to me I was like well if I want to if I want to see a Stephen King work, then I'm going to wait for the movie because I'm thinking <laughs> of misery. Like the movie was so amazing. But so do you get the same sort of like thrill ride with the, the book versions of these thriller books or is it different? Yeah. Different? Uh, yeah. I, I think that there, there are benefits to both. I mean, sometimes based upon, uh, you know, sometimes the movies are done really, really well. Uh, and sometimes not. So you happen to pick one misery. I could have easily have added to my list. I love that book. Um, yeah. and, and some of the psychology in there in the book you just don't get in the movie, and, and obviously the visuals you can't get uh, in the book that you're reading. So some are just equally done equally well. Um, but uh, to me, the thriller, I love the spy thriller genre. I guess I should have been more yeah. specific. Though I've read a lot of the Stephen King stuff. I, I don't like fantasy too much. Uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, though I've done, uh, Stephen King wrote that book about going back and trying to uh, fix so to speak, the Kennedy assassination. So there's a, just the, the science fiction nature where you have to base, accept the premise that a right. guy can go back in time. <laughs> and you laugh at that, yeah. but once you do, it's consistent with that. And as long as there's that consistency, I can accept it. I just, I'm not a fan of the, the pure fantasy, otherworldly type stuff. Right. So the one that you were so um, uh, impressed with, you said the single best of, of all of that genre is I Am Pilgrim by Terry Hayes. Is that a political thriller? It's not. So this one is, uh, it's a spy genre. So it's unusual mm-hmm. in the spy genre. It's told in the first person by the protagonist. And uh, it, it was just so well written and surprised me at every level, uh, but in a way that was just, uh, uh, what's the right word, realistic from within the genre. Yeah. He wasn't a James Bond superhuman type. Uh, he had his flaws. Right. Um, you know, he got taken advantage of, uh, of, he succeeded and it, it was told in multiple, you know, he was told in the present and then, uh, backwards and looking forward. And it was so uh, different that it's something that stuck out 
and it's one I've recommended many times and has always been uh, a hit every time I've recommended it. So uh, I'm a big cool. fan. Yeah. So I'm just curious, when you read that, did you do what I do like and go right to Amazon and go, what other stuff has Terry Hayes written? I gotta, or you were just like, no, one time I'm out. No, I I, you're, you're Terry Hayes right. and I, No, no, I, I did. And, and he had another book in the queue uh, that was due out, uh, I think, two years after I, I read it, and then it was delayed to like 2050. <laughs> I got an email from Amazon. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, those emails, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. So Terry Hayes apparently is working on the screenplay version of I Am Pilgrim rather than writing a new uh, a novel. So presumably we will see it in the theaters at some point where you can then say, yeah, I guess I'll read the book. Or I'm glad I read right. the book. But, uh, right, right. But, uh, but so he hasn't, as far as I know, I don't think he's written another novel uh, and has been a screenwriter in Hollywood for a long time. Um, and this is his only novel. So that's disappointing. That's interesting. You're, you're right, because I often will pick up um, a, a novel. For example, there's one by uh, Joe Nesbo that I could have put down here called The Headhunter. Uh, mm-hmm. so which is uh, Joe Nesbo has a series of uh, who done it uh, with a single protagonist, and this was outside that, and it's about the adventures that a headhunter gets into when he gets in over his head with a with a client. So I think maybe we should add that to the list uh, for your people about uh, checking out your clients before you maybe do the assignment. That's that's the lesson <laughs> from the headhunter by, by Joe Nesbo. I feel like. Yeah. I feel like I could write a whodunit with featuring a headhunter only with my people. It's more like who didn't do it because nobody <laughs> seems to do anything uh, that I want. So let's let's jump a little bit to the President's uh, Club because I feel like I'm a like a history guy and I feel like I know history. But when you said that this is a book about how Herbert Hoover um, helped rescue Europe when he was asked by Harry Truman – I was like, wow, I am so out of it. Like my recollection of of Herbert Hoover was like he got us into the Great Depression, was like the worst president ever, was embarrassed by FDR in 1928 and never heard from again. But that's actually not true. He actually lived a very long life. In fact, I read after seeing your your list, I, I went to Wikipedia and there's a link to a YouTube. He spoke at the 1960 Democrat uh, Republican um, convention. Yeah, he, he lived spoke. in the he lived yeah he lived in the Waldorf. Um, it was thirty two that he lost to Roosevelt. Yes, um, oh, right, 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 and not twenty eight. And, and you're right, he was blamed, mm-hmm. rightfully so, for a lot of the Great Depression, and and was ridiculed by uh, by Roosevelt, and yet took the call. He was a wealthy man, lived in the Waldorf his whole life, lived another you know thirty odd years, and uh, Harry Truman was the president, as we all know, uh, during the rebuilding of Europe, and Europe was starving. Uh, when we all have, have the pictures of these major cities that were just bombed out and refugees everywhere. Um, and Europe was ready to starve, and there was the Marshall Plan, but how do you execute that? And apparently during World War I, um, uh, Hoover had done a lot of that. So he was instrumental in a logistical uh, savant uh, in those days in terms of supply chains and things to happen, and he was absolutely instrumental to saving Europe. And that was just the amazing. first story. But it's, yeah, it's amazing. An amazing story. Um, and, you know, including, I don't know what this tells us, but uh, the, the, we go up to Nixon. Nixon was the only president who, unfortunately for him, had a period of time when there were no other past presidents alive at the same time that he was in, uh, in office at the end of his, uh, before he resigned in, in, in the 70s in his second term. 
um, uh, once uh, LBJ died and Hoover died. Right. And obviously, Kennedy had been uh, dead and Eisenhower died. There were there were no presidents alive. And Truman, I think, was the last of the longest of all those. So once Truman died, there was nobody alive for uh, for Nixon to consult with, not that he necessarily listened. And then the other irony in bringing it up, uh, whatever people think about uh, Trump, Trump has the advantage, if he wants to take advantage of it, that there are no more uh, – there has never been a time as of right now when there have been as many ex-presidents alive. Uh, as we have right now. So there you go. Yeah, it's, and it's what I remember about uh, Nixon was that, of course, he was persona non grata, um, and nobody wanted to, you know, he carried like 50 states and nobody would admit they voted for him um, <laughs> after Watergate. But um, I remember reading after the fact, of course, because it was, you better do it behind closed doors, that Clinton would reach out to him and say, what do you think? That Reagan would reach out to him and say, what do you think? And certainly George Bush, who you know worked for Nixon, but you couldn't be on record as having consulted Richard Nixon, but everybody knew he was a really, really smart guy. And I'll be fascinated and shocked, of course, if 10 years from now, we find out that on occasion, Trump would call Obama um, and say, hey, look, uh, no hard feelings. I don't care where you were born. What do I do? I mean, it'd be amazing <laughs> if that's the case. I agree. You know? I agree. Yeah. And, but I wouldn't and be you're surprised. Right. Nixon had, had, you know, there's a lot about Nixon and the presidents that succeeded him. And he was very, um, I don't want to say instrumental. There's nothing that sticks out from reading the book. But he definitely was consulted by uh, every president after, I don't think Ford did, for obvious reasons, right after uh, he was the president, right after Nixon resigned. Right. <laughs> but uh, many presidents consulted with him. Absolutely right. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, those are the kind of books that you read. And you just... Um, like I just read the Grant biography and there's two things, you know, it's like 900 pages and there's two things that come out of it for me. One is like deep uh, awe and respect for these historians who can tell you what, you know, Ulysses S. Grant ordered uh, at, for breakfast, um, you know, in 1863. Uh, right. And I'm like, I don't even know what I had yesterday. I, well, how do they get this stuff? So you get this deep respect. But then there's this feeling of like, um, satisfaction of like, I'm smarter. Uh, I just finished this biography and it's almost like it must be how, like how people feel when they eat kale. Like I, that was a good thing I did. I read a biography about presidents, and sometimes books just make you feel smarter and better about yourself. But then you said you, this is the one we'll end on because I thought it was such a, uh, dichotomous to what we've been talking about. Scrappy little nobody by Anna Kendrick, you recommended. Uh, which is a collection of essays by that young actress from uh, Pitch Perfect and Up in the Air, who's a phenomenal actress. I had no idea she was a writer. And you said, what made you buy that book? That's amazing to me that you even bought that book. Yeah, I, I was just reading the New York Times book review, and it happened to have a good review ah. of it, and it, that made me laugh. Um, and I had, even though I saw Up in the Air, I didn't associate it with her, but my right. daughters uh, were fans of, of the Pitch Perfect movies, and there she was. Sure. Uh, so I remember being impressed with that. So as a, as a lark and like we can do an Amazon, I, I downloaded the sample and, and it made me laugh. So I said, I'll, I'll yeah. read it. And, and it's like a coming of age story. Um, you know, she's very, very candid. She talks about, you know, some sexual experiences without naming any names, but as a young actress and, and said like, this is the chapter mom and dad don't read, skip ahead, please. And, and, <laughs> and, you know, the times that struck me that something you've always thought, Danny is, 
you know, fake it until you make it in terms of right. young headhunters. And she had these when she was invited to these parties and she really was still broke because she wasn't paid a lot or she had a lot of time in between right. jobs. But she was expected to show up on the red carpet, you know, looking glamorous. And and, mm-hmm. and she talked about very candidly about some of those struggles uh, as a young actress and, and being uh, stereotyped and being. Uh, walked on. I'm not saying that she doesn't have any giant Me Too stories. It actually came out before uh, really right. all those Weinstein stories came out. But it was still very instructive and, and very funny. So she has a tremendous sense of humor. She brings you right into the experience uh, and makes you realize that you know overnight successes are, are, are rarely truly overnight successes. Yeah, yeah, they work really hard to be overnight successes for a exactly long time. Right. Yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. But it, it is always astonishing, though, when you see someone who you assume is an actress sing. Like when I first heard Pitch Perfect, I was like, oh, she sings? I thought she was just that sort of quirky little actress in up in the air. Um, and in the uh, movie The Accountant, she's also great in it. And, uh, and then, you know, when I see that she's a, uh, an author, I'm just like, well, some people just get too much talent. That's just not right. That's amazing. That's you and know, some phenomenal. people say it's just yeah. not right that Meryl Streep sings at all. So there you go. So sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yes, I would be in that camp for sure. Yeah, it's also though fun. Uh, I don't know if this happens a lot to you. I do the same thing with the New York Times book review, but um, I sometimes just wander bookstores and just you know sometimes they have the editor's choice or uh, readers. Uh, selections based on the staff of the Barnes and Nobles. And I'm like, what do these people know? But I'll look at those. Or sometimes it's ridiculous stuff like the design of the cover or the hairstyle of the author. But it's such a, it's almost like when you're home and you're flipping through channels and you see a movie star and you go, I have no idea what this is, but okay. And then you find it's a good movie. It's like such a thrill. It's like such a find. It's fun when you just like are stuck in an airport and buy a book because it has a quirky title and you go, wow, that that was a really fun book. That never would have happened to me. I never would have picked that book in a million years. Um, and it's always so much fun when they turn out to be entertaining. No question. Um, the the other one, uh, I don't know how much time we have, but you know, the Supermensch book uh, by a guy named Shep Gordon, who I never heard of, and that was actually the way I learned about that was from a candidate uh, who turned down our offer. So uh, he turned down the offer, but he really handled himself professionally. It was hard to argue with his rationale as much as I'd like to. Um, and I, I think I'll place him down the road, but I called him a mensch and he had just read this book. They call me super mensch and recommended it to me. It's also a documentary. So there's one, you can either read it or watch the documentary, which is done by Michael right. Myers. And, and this guy crossed, you know, had this instrumental part of our world. Anybody who has any interest in, in entertainment over the last 30 something years, uh, this guy was behind the scenes and a lot of it was just being in the right place at the right time. Uh, but there's some great stories. So that's the other one I really like. It's called, uh, they call me Supermensch by Shep Gordon. Shep Gordon, uh, right, which is Shep, also a documentary by Mike Myers. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. Uh, cool. Yeah, so uh, it was just really good stuff. Well, that that actually says, uh, to me, that's, that is uh, edifying for recruiters because they spend so much time on their emails and not enough time on their subject lines. And, you know, I published two books, and both times the publisher beat me up. The first time, I didn't know what I wanted for a title, um, and they were like, we've got to find a better title. We've got to find a subtitle that works. We've got... And I was like, why? Um, and it's amazing how much people put into titles. You know, they call me super mensch is a great title for a book, right? Because anybody who knows that term, um, it, it's a very informative title. Um, and, you know, 
my second book, I had the title before I even wrote the book because I was living it. I was aging disgracefully. So it was easy <laughs> for me to do it. But um, if recruiters would spend more time on the attractiveness and um, the fun element, um, what is informative about your subject line, uh, more emails would be opened. There's no question about that. I mean, we, and, we, and, and, we put and, way too much emphasis on titles for books. And uh, the other part, right, is obviously catching them, right? What is the hook? And, and the very first story right. tells, which is such a hook, and I'll, I'll give it away here. People can read the details. I think they'll like it. But he, he literally moves out to Hollywood on a lark and is staying in some hotel, and he hears noise outside like he thinks that a woman is being attacked. So he goes outside with like a baseball bat ready to be the knight in shining armor, uh, and instead he finds uh, Jimi Hendrix having sex with Janis Joplin. No joke. And really? Was, yeah. Disturbing visual. Yeah. Disturbing visual, but he becomes great friends with them, and Jimi Hendrix loves this, you know, this Jewish kid, you know, out of nowhere, and introducing the people, and he takes advantage of it. But it's this great opening story. That's how wow. he essentially gets into the business, right? So how do you not love that hook when you read that in the very first story? You're like, well, I guess right. I'll read more. He's got me. Yes, you you got me. Right. That's your first story. I bet there are a lot of good right. ones after this. Absolutely. So last thing, when you were in that plane, would you, would you say most people were reading a book, watching a movie, listening to music? Where are, where is reading in the culture in your mind? Oh just boy, that's, that a good, that's a good question. I, I think most, well, on the way out there, everybody wanted to sleep. So that's probably not fair on the way back. Right. Less so. I, I'd say movies dominated. Yeah. They've got yep. those info systems on the plane. Uh, and to be fair, I did a while, you know, I, 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 on the way back, I, coming from Israel, I had a book called The Holocaust. So that was, you know, very light reading for me. And, yeah, uh, <laughs> sure. And, <laughs> and I picked it up, but I can only read like 10 pages at a time. And then I watched a two hour movie and then I read another 10 pages. So not quite, uh, uh, the same, but yeah, uh, I, I think a lot of people were reading, but more often people were watching, uh, or, or something on on uh, either their iPads or whatever tablet or um, the entertainment system within the plane. So I don't think that speaks about the culture. It just it maybe just uh, the nature of getting it free and leaning back and having 10 hours to kill. Um, so uh, I don't think it's a fair, uh, it's a fair example of what you're looking for, but. Uh, right, right, answer. right. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? I'm, I'm just curious. It's just, it's a time when everybody's trapped. Um, but yeah, visual medium, I think uh, is, is always an airplane going to be, uh, the first choice, but I, you know, I, I hear a lot of people um, listening to books with Audible, and I'm not sure how I feel about that either because I want to hear my own voice as I read, but I'd rather they use Audible than not read books at all because I think it it just makes you better over time. Yeah, look, a very a very close friend of mine who was also an English major uh, at Penn the same time as me has got a miserable commute into Manhattan every day and where he drives. Uh, and he, he swears by audible books. That's like how he passes yeah. his time. And instead of being made crazy by the traffic, he just enjoys the time that he has by himself with nothing else going on and, and listening to a book. Uh, yeah. And he says sometimes it's done really well uh, and sometimes it's not. And that Sometimes he'll then have to pick up the book and, and because he doesn't like it, but it's been better and better. And very often the author, uh, him or herself, that is doing the reading. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I think it's the next best thing, no doubt. All right, I know you have jet lag. I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, buddy. Anything for you. All right, my friend. We'll talk to you Take soon. Care. See ya. Bye-bye. So a lot of people ask me, um, what are what's the education level of people in Pinnacle? And it, it always surprises people to hear that. I think they all assume that everybody's 
like super smart and educated. Well, they're all super smart, but they're not all super educated. Um, there's people in Pinnacle that have made millions that have high school educations, and um, and yet there's people with advanced degrees. And uh, Robin Bland, uh, my colleague, um, has an advanced degree, um, as do I. But that's not what makes us readers. And what I remembered when, before Rob and I were colleagues, and we'd meet at Pinnacle Society meetings. You guys know that I love quotes, and so I would, I would do a quote, and if it wasn't for the fact that Robin was in the room, I would get away with the people thinking it was me. But Robin always knew who I was actually quoting, uh, and so she was still my thunder. So, Rob, thanks for joining us. So let's talk a little bit about um, reading. So I, I was I was thinking about how you are, you've always been a reader, but you're always you're also into you're a Tony Robbins person. Did you? Follow Robbins by going to him first and then buying his books? Or did you buy the books oh, no. and then say, I got to go see this guy? No, 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 no. I didn't even know anything about his books. I'd never heard of them. I mean, I didn't even know really? what they were. No, I was not into the whole self helpy type of stuff. I mean, I have a degree in literary studies and a master's in education and a, and a, a, law, a law degree. But it was, um, <clears throat> I literally went to a class. It was, uh, it, was a, it was one of these, you know, wealth management classes. Uh, kind of symposiums and they had a whole bunch of people there the guy that wrote rich dad you know poor dad i think is what it was yep. and so um i went there to go and actually see how other people sold that was my interest i mean i'm just kind mm -hmm. of a learner personality so i wanted to see how do real estate people sell how do you know people that do stock market how do they sell all that stuff and so i decided well i'm gonna go there and i saw tony robbins did a little tiny small little um i don't know just a little bit of a of a, of a, of a final sampling of what he does and so mm -hmm. I was like well that was kind of interesting and I was still kind of like oh this guy is kind of a hardcore salesperson and that's all lovely and fine but I'm not rubbing anybody's back and um, <laughs> sure enough the lady sitting next to me is like you know hey I used to be I was a real estate agent and I was like at the very bottom because I'm the number one real estate agent in all of Oklahoma which obviously is Oklahoma but she goes but I'm about to open up an office in Texas and I tend to do the same thing here so I was like well that's pretty impressive so then when I started you know I went to some of the things so then I did start reading his his, his books and of course those started I mean I'd always been a reader anyway but anytime I would ever meet anybody I was like okay that guy said something smart and I would read that book I mean I don't care right. if I agree with you philosophically politically religiously if you said something intelligent I'm like well let me go and read that book because in my mind if you do something you know I can I, I took I went to college for years and years and years but I'm sitting here going if I can read a book for two or three you know take me half a day a couple hours whatever it might be that person probably spent 10 years writing that book. And right. so I can, I can read in, in two or three hours what it took you 10 years to put together. I'm going to do it. <laughs> you know what's, you know, yeah, but you know what's funny about, I mean, you got to give Tony credit because unlike a lot of those self-help people, um, you know, usually they have a great presence. They know how to present. And then when you read their books, it's sort of a letdown because you were so excited by the intensity of the guy that his writing can't match that presentation, but his does. He has the power when he's he's writing as well. But I think a lot of the younger people um, that work for us say, oh, I don't read books as much, but I watch a lot of TED Talks. I listen to a lot of podcasts, mm -hmm. which, look, it's great. You get the information. But now that I've read a lot of these books and then you see the TED Talk version of the book, it's really, really dumbed down. And, you, and I don't care who you are, you can't put in 12 minutes what you wrote 300 pages and took you five years to write. 
And I always feel like, yeah, read the book. I get that you like the TED Talk, but please read the book. And I'm hearing that that's what you do. If someone says something smart in a TED Talk, you're going to go read their book. And a lot of people don't. They just feel like they have. It is. It's a commitment to something. I mean, a TED Talk is kind of like saying, you know, somebody coming over to dinner and saying, well, let me put together a nice dessert. That's lovely. But somebody who puts together the entire seven-course meal, that's impressive. You know what I'm saying? So I I think that's the difference is like, you know, a TED Talk, I mean, I can come up with a 15-minute speech and put some nice little things in there, and it'll sound pretty and impressive. But putting together 400 pages is a different story altogether, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Although a lot of these people you put on your list, along with Tony Robbins, you put um, uh, Jen Sincero, who wrote this bestseller, um, uh, You Are a Badass, which everybody seems to like. And it was funny because I, I read it and I thought, um, well, okay, she she really just takes like a compendium of all self-help stuff and then puts her really hilarious, hysterical spin on it. But then when I got to the end of it, I was like, Okay, she went from this whole idea of if you just love yourself, then you'll become a badass, which is the initial thing. Um, but then by the end, she had some really interesting thoughts. Like like I see you and I are in a sales business and we're trying to make a lot of money and we know the value of money. Neither one of us came from money as kids, so we just know the value of money. But I, what I love most about You Are a Badass is the part of the book where she talks about people's relationship with money. Like – like we, nobody wants to be known as somebody who lives for money and nobody wants to be perceived as being greedy or being all about money. And yet we spend so much of our life trying to get things <laughs> and acquire things. And we judge each other by what we've done and what we've acquired. And she's basically saying, screw that. It's, it's okay. The line I remember she said that stopped me in my tracks on an airplane was she said, the more you have, the more you can share. Right, yeah, and, and, that and I was, was like, yeah. It all, it all reverberates from a Tony. That that's where it all came back from. Like I learned about money, and Tony Robbins was like, when he read, when you read, he says that, you know, if you have money, it just ex- enhances what you already are. If you're a generous person, be more generous. If you're a stingy person, you have more to be stingy about. And that, right. and that when you start getting it, I mean, a lot of people, especially like in sales, when we talk about recruiters that are not successful, and you know, I've had this conversation. It is a lot of times because they are they've been taught, oh my God, money is bad, you know, or that if right. I have a lot of money, I'm going to be this kind of person. Or the worst part is, is that I get money and then it's like, oh, now I got to sustain this. And you yes. know, I think that both her book and, and his book, I think is like you said, there's a lot of running themes that go through it, but that's the case with almost every book. If you, I was a literary studies major in college and I have, you know, what I learned from my professors was there's only, what do they say? Seven or eight different, you know, plot lines. In, right. in the in book. So I think it's the same thing with this. It's just a different way of saying that. Just like when we recruit, you could call somebody and somebody go, wow, that guy in that job is rock and roll. I'm on it. And then I could call him and say the same job, same position. And they're like, well, I don't know. I'm not sure. You know, and so it yeah. is different. I think the reason you read a lot of different books is because certain things will speak to you more than others. You know, there's a, the voice is different, but the message can be the same. And we need sometimes to have the message. I mean, as you say in our, a lot of our conf- our conferences and your your training is like, why are we still talking about the same damn thing we were talking about two right. years ago and three years and four years ago? Because it right. will always be the problem. We always have to, you know, we we have to always overcome those obstacles. Yeah, but it's also that um, you know, I, I don't know if it's a Buddhist saying, but um, it's that saying of 
when the student is ready, the teacher appears. So one of the reasons why, you know, you have to keep drumming the same stuff into Lindsay's ears um, and I have to keep saying the same things over and over again at conferences is because, and it's, 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 it's hard uh, because you have to bring the same energy because A, there might be a new person in the room that's never heard it. And, and I find that when I'm, when I'm reading You Are a Badass, Emily in my office loved it, loved it. And she doesn't know that Jensen Cerro's is basically parroting Tony Robbins or Eckhart Tolle or any of these other people. If you haven't read it, you think this is the bomb. Just like if you've never heard the original version of a song and you hear a cover, you don't like the original. But the person who heard the original thinks the cover is awful, right? Real, it's like a, what is it, a 200-page book, Tony Robbins' Awaken the Giant is like 500. So, I mean, sometimes right. it's something that, that somebody can digest in an easy thing. It's And then that's why they can do the TED Talks is because, okay, well, I can digest. That's I hate to say it, but sometimes attention span. But the reason that, you know, the whole writing becomes important, like we were talking about that book, Stephen King on writing. I had never even yeah. heard of that book. But when you said it in a – I was at, I think it was um, TAPC in Texas, one of those conferences mm -hmm. years ago. I didn't even know who you were, to be honest with you. And yep. I sat there and, and was – you said something about Stephen King. I wrote it in a book, and I wrote Stephen King on writing. You said, this is a book that ever, that really influenced me in recruiting. And I was like, what? On writing? Okay. And, you know, I'm, I want to write the great American novel. So I'm like, well, at least it'll be good for the writing part of it. So I went and I got it home. And then when I read it, I can remember and I underlined this thing and I highlighted it. And I just, I wrote it on a note card and stuck it on my door. And I said, and it said, the reason that he was good at what he did as the most prolific writer is because do it every day. And so exactly. that prompted me to start. I had not really been a reader of you know, nonfiction. I was literary studies. I could read, I could talk to you about classics, Shakespeare, name any, anybody. I could, you know, the American authors, whatever. I could talk to you about any, any kind of um, literary studies. But that was the moment when you told me about that book on writing that I started reading actual books on recruiting because not, not the, or that I said would help me on recruiting self-help books or, you know, other right. people that were business on money. Cause I thought, well, cause he was saying, you know, if you want to be a writer, you've got to read a lot and you got to do it every day. You got to do it every day. So I was like, well, how do I become a really good recruiter? Cause I was kind of a new baby recruiter. And yeah. for me, I was like, well, how do I better become a better recruiter? Well, there's no books on recruiting. Really? There's a couple of books on exactly. sales, but there really was no books on recruiting. I looked. And but what I did is I said, well, what does recruiting? It's about you know knowing people. It's about being organized. It's about being a salesperson. It's about you know being self motivated and not letting you know. It's about being you know not torn down by the the psychological aspects of wanting money you know and not feeling yeah. bad about that. And so I was like, well, I'm going to read every book I can possibly get my hands on that is going to help me in every different aspect of that of that job. And so you know and so like what Stephen King said is do it every day. So I try to read. I mean. I'm like everybody else. I don't read it all the time, but I, I try to read at least one to two books a month. Right. And see, that's the thing that a, a, a really committed, a really great recruiter like you is willing to transpose. I always say this to, I just said it in Houston to Mike Lejeune. It's like you, you, you want to be um, baby fed. Like recruiters only want to hear about recruiting information, but I could stand up there on blue in the face and did for years and say, great recruiters have discipline. But when I say, look, I just read this Stephen King book on writing, and he says that he literally takes all the applications off his computer other than word processing, doesn't have a TV in his writing room, 
and literally, now this is a little psycho, but he turns the pictures in his um, in his room uh, around so that he can't see the pictures and closes the blinds and won't come out until he's he's written a thousand words. And if that means it's three o'clock and he's starving, he's willing to pay that price. And right. you're not the first person who said to me, man, I got disciplined when I heard you say that about Stephen King, even though your boss probably told you a million times that you should be disciplined. So the great recruiters are willing to transpose material. Like I wasn't shocked to see people as disparate. And again, everybody, Robin's list will be uh, on the podcast. Uh, but you've got classics like Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and and kind of, you know, out there stuff like Eckhart Tolle um, and, and Marianne uh, Williamson. So you have eclectic taste, which also says to me, yeah, but if I get something that means something to me, I will transpose it into my recruiting life. So the one you said, so many different things, yeah, things. Yeah, that you cannot, you can't get it from one book. You really can't. You just can't. You've got to get it from. I mean, because sometimes this is a very spiritual job. It's like you've got to sit there and go, you know, I got to give this thing meaning, or I'm not going to get up and do this and have somebody tell me, no, I don't want your stupid job again. You know, absolutely. No, yeah. I'm not interested. I'm retiring next week. You know, you 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 know, you just get beat down so much that, and you know, and you have other people that are like, oh my God, Robin, I'm getting laid off next week. I mean. Are all these people are getting laid off and they need jobs and you're just going, oh my God, they're coming at me like a bunch of zombies. You know, right. you have to, from a spiritual thing, is like, I've got to give this job some meaning. And so you've got to dig yep. down into that spiritual part of yourself. So there comes Marianne Williamson, whereas you might say, God, i got to get myself organized. And so there might be somebody else and it's like, why am I avoiding this job? You read a book like from Vince Bassetti, who was an Olympic, you know, skier, who says, it's our subconscious just beating the hell out of us. And, you know, and yeah. the elephant, we got to deal with the ant, you know, that's our, right. our conscious mind telling us what to do. So, yeah. So let, let's end with, with this because um, you're, what, what, 18 years in the business now? 20? How, cool, how, how far along in the business are you? Something like that. Oh, you're still a baby. You're still a baby. So um, everybody gets down. Everybody has slumps. Everybody has the days, no matter how successful they've been, where they wake up and go, why me? I can't do this anymore. So let's talk a little bit about the book you said is my all-time best and that you still read it once a year, which made me smile because I'm thinking, is there a book that I still read once a year? And it is. It's Catcher in the Rye. But um, that's true of anybody of my generation, I think. Um, but the book that you said you read once a year is the uh, the book by Art Berg, which is called is it called The Impossible, or is it no, called Only Take a Little Long? Just takes a little longer, yeah. yeah. The Impossible yeah. takes a little longer. Can you just tell us a little bit about the, a synopsis of the summary of that book and why sure. it's so powerful? Um, Art Berg is a is a guy that was a young guy. He was going to his wedding. He was getting married. Um, his groomsmen fell asleep at the wheel. They went off a cliff. Um, he ended up becoming paralyzed from the bottom down. From from pretty much was a paraplegic, and things were tough, you know. And they basically said you were going to have no life. You know, his wife, who was supposed to marry him, is sitting right there. Or they ended up that she ended up marrying him. But anyway, he went. He goes through a life of like being somebody like that, which you know, his, at, at a young age, really sucked. He got really upset but his mom said something to him well the impossible is just going to take a little longer you know because they told him it was impossible for him to do you know multiple things he became the person that the reason that when you go to a that that people who are um disabled can get into a car and drive a rental car because they have those little machines that push the pedal he was the one that said you know i want to be able to drive a car and he ended up i think it was the um 
Wow. But he was a guy that was uh, became the L.A. Rams, I think it was, or the Raiders. I can't remember which one it was. But he um, he became, he was actually considered. He says I'm the only paraplegic that's ever gotten the Super Bowl ring because he helped him win the Super Bowl because he taught them about winning and about what it took to get over wow. that slump. So it's just it's a book where you know, I mean, it's one of those. Yeah, he overcame a lot of stuff, and he, you know, the kind of. Um, you know that kind of thing that we all like to cheer for. You know that Rudy guy, yeah. kind of thing like that. But it's but when he talks about the things, the, the process in which he went to get those things. I mean, he didn't just go, I'm just so internally strong. It's like he put his, he engaged his brain and said, Hey, how can I come up with a problem solving to this particular? I mean, how can I come up with a solution to this problem? And and you know, it wasn't just one of those, Hey, I'm just going to get through it by grits and gut. He got through it with his intelligence, and I I really. Right. That really kind of resonates with me that, you know, sometimes, you know, just being, you know, the will to do it is not just enough. Sometimes you just got to figure out, you got to put your brain in there, too. And he did that. In the right. Because the popular thing is to talk about know your why, but sometimes you got to know a how. Otherwise, you, yeah. you can't. Well, what a great, profound thought. The impossible takes a little longer. I think one of the things I always try to find when someone's in a slump is a way without insulting them to say, Stop feeling sorry for yourself. And when you read a book like that, um, just like for me, the Victor Frankl book, Man's Search for Meaning, about a guy surviving the concentration camps, it's like you cannot feel sorry for yourself after reading about Art Burke or Victor Frankl. You just can't. And and I think that's just a real gift to be able to say, okay, enough of that. Let's do something. Or as you've often said to me, this shit ends now. Um, and Books like that are just always going to be helpful because, you know, recruiting is not linear. You're going to have dad, bad days, bad years, bad months, clients that uh, that don't have work for you after having tons of work, candidates who don't show up for work. You've got to have some sort of wellspring of spirit or energy that you can go to. And books help. Yeah, and his book, I think it was the the part too, is that he was just trying to make his own life better. I mean, because like I just want to drive a car. I want to so people don't have right. to get me, so I don't have to depend on other people. I want to make my life better, and as a result, he made so many other people's lives better. And so that's that's kind of the meaning I think when you were a recruiter is is that you know when I started recruiting, I just want to make my life better. I want to be able to pay my bills. I wanted to be able to right. give my kids some stuff. I wanted to you know I wanted some stuff. I mean, I hate to say it, but that was my motivator. It was nothing else. It was not about helping people it was not about anything else but I just want to make my life better and as a result I think that I can honestly say there's a lot of people and companies whose lives have been enriched because of me wanting to make my life better and I think right. that's the book too is like hey you know that that's that's where the whole you know that's why you got to give it all you got because you know like I said you're making your life better but at the end of the day if you do that everybody else will it you know be right and in that in that way books are tools um, as opposed to, I think the way people look at it now is, why would I want to read a book when I've got so many other things to do? Um, yeah, because they're good tools to help you accomplish exactly what it is you want to do. All right, enough. Thank you for giving us some time. I really appreciate this. Okay, cool. And we will get your uh, we will get your your list on the website. And anybody um, who wants to see what Robin reads, um, you can see it on the podcast link. Thanks, Rob. Talk to you later. <laughs> Bye-bye. So, so now we're joined by Dan Martin, one of my favorite Pinnacle people, uh, and not just because of his uh, recruiting cred. He's sort of a legend at the Dunhill franchise. He won the Millie Michaels Award, which is sort of a lifetime achievement award at Dunhill. 
and, and has been on his own for a long time and, and done extremely well. But uh, I, I asked Dan to submit his uh, reading list because uh, I respect how he thinks and and how he goes about uh, what he does. And and so, Dan, thanks for joining. I'm looking at your, your reading list. And the first one that you sent me you. Uh, just made mm-hmm. me laugh because uh, David Brooks makes me crazy. For those of you who don't know, David Brooks <laughs> is a New York Times uh, columnist. He's sort of supposed to be their their uh, the Republican uh, uh, columnist so that they have some fair and balanced uh, approach to it. And sometimes Probably, he writes yeah. these wonderful columns, and sometimes I want to drive to New York and strangle him. Um, but you you put down on your list his book, uh, The Road to Character. Yep. So tell me a little bit about that book. Um, okay. So, and, and your assessment of David is pretty accurate. Um, I think <laughs> I probably like him a little bit more than you do. But right. up front, I need to say this. This could come off as a little preachy. Um, and, you know, what he's talking about here in the context, uh, I am an extremely flawed human being. Anyone that knows me knows that. But that's one of the reasons why this book appealed to me so much. So the core premise of this is kind of, you know, that we've moved away over the course of the last hundred years or so, have moved away from building character to building careers, right? So character, as he defines it, is like who or what we're about, right? And careers are what we've accomplished and how we've distinguished ourselves beyond or above others. He brings mm-hmm. it down into two categories, resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And resume virtues are, you know, those skills that we build to attain external success, career success. Eulogy virtues are those deeper, some might argue more meaningful things that people talk about at your funeral, right? Your core being, you were kind, brave, faithful, honest, trustworthy. It's your Boy Scout stuff, right? So that's kind of the core of the book. To illustrate that, though, he introduces a very interesting way of looking at it, a book written, I guess, in 1965 by a rabbi, and the book was called The Lonely Man of Faith, who basically argues there's two accounts of creation in the Bible, of Genesis, I guess, um, that represent opposing sides of ourselves. It's called Adam 1 and Adam 2. Now, Adam 1 is basically the guy who's on the mission to conquer the world, right? These are the resume virtues. He's about bigger, better, better. <laughs> Um, and Adam, too, is on a mission to serve the world, not just, not just do good, but be good. And what he's saying is, is that we, modern man, live in the contradiction or the chasm between the two Adams, where Adam, one, believes that input equals output and effort equals reward. Simply, it's the ethos that you and I and everybody in this business as recruiters work under. Adam, one, is our closer, right? He's the guy. Right that seeks to dominate and be number one in our office or niche of the world. And he's the one that tends to talk about their billings and brag. And well, we all know that guy and that guy lives inside us or that woman, however you want to put it, we'll put it Eve one and two. Um, Adam two though, believes the inverse is true. That you must give first to receive. You must surrender to something outside of yourself, bigger than yourself to find strength within yourself. And ultimately, the failures within ourselves is what leads to the success um, of humility. And humility is what leads to wisdom, right? Because once we admit that we don't know, right, then we seek to understand. And that's, I think, that's what really intrigued me. So I'm, I'm a big believer in character and, yeah. you know, have, have, at certain points in my life have strived to be better. I'm not sure I'm at that. I may be at the nadir of that right now, which is why I sought this book out when I saw him speak yeah. about it on Meet the Press. 
But that's, that's there. There's a lot of detail around it, but that's the core of it. You know, it's so funny you're talking about that because um, I was amazed the other day to see Jimmy Carter on TV, who's like 92 and still incredibly lucid yes. and cogent. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and I think he's a great example of what you're talking about um, and maybe what Brooks is, is getting at because I'm looking at him and going, oh, no question. I don't think anybody, mm-hmm. no matter what your side of the aisle would argue, that's probably the finest human being who ever was in the White House from just like a pure character perspective. Like, this is a good guy. I mean, he didn't try to make right. a ton of money when he left the presidency. He did Habit for Humanity. You know, he's trying yep. to negotiate peace treaties with people. And this guy has lived an amazing life. And nobody would question mm-hmm. his humility or his character. And at the same time, Somebody asked me who's one of the worst presidents of my lifetime. I'd say, well, Jimmy Carter, um, <laughs> right? And, and there yeah. it is. And he's sort yeah. of dismissed, right? Um, and we're in an mm-hmm. age of, of, of there's not much humility out there. But it's so funny when I first saw the road to character. You know, I think about character, and I think, well, how do I define that? You're right. When you're a recruiter, you're so used to achievements, accomplishments, and what can I tell the client that you did? And how often right. have I gotten on the phone and submitted a candidate? And said, you know, Mr. Martin, no, you've got to see Joanne because she's got such great character. I think I'd get laughed off the phone. And yet at the same time, at the end yeah. of the day, that old definition, right? Character is what we do when we think no one is looking. Um, right. And it really is. It's, it's what matters. It really is what matters. Well, I, and I would, I would absolutely agree with, with what you've just said. Um, and, but the, the, on the front end, it's extraordinarily difficult to quantify um, character, right? Or to yeah. tell character because it's so tough to quantify. But that is precisely the per that is precisely the thing you get back a year from right. now when they're telling you how amazing that person is. And I absolutely agree about Jimmy Carter. Um, Jimmy Carter is about, I mean, he is that tremendous human being at his core. Lousy president, made bad decisions, <laughs> waffled. Yes, all of that. Right. But he's also the person that, that started Habitat for Humanity. He's the person right. that thinks of others first. He's the person that, you know, when you, if you, at his funeral, people will be on both sides of the aisle weeping and crying and, and, you know, talking about what a tremendous human being he was. I went to a funeral, gosh, this was uh, last summer, for a guy who was a good friend of mine back in college days. We used to hang out, drink beer together. He was a guy that, just a super, super nice guy. He wasn't really committed to like excelling or anything like that. He was into literature and drinking beer. And so we had that in common, Um, but I hadn't seen him in a long time. And I went to this funeral and I showed up about five minutes beforehand and I didn't even get in the building, right? So there, the chapel was full and the overflow Mm. area was full and the hallway was full. And I was left standing outside with the doors open along with 45 other people that I'd never met. Um, whom, right. you know, I would thought I would have known. And we listened to this eulogy go on and on and one person after another. And they talked about, you know, what a tremendous human being he was. And when you spoke with him, how you always felt that you were the only person in the room and the only person that mattered. And, and that, that he was just one of those people that, that everyone dearly loved. And I thought, that's absolutely right. I've got to change my life. I've got to be more yeah. like that, that person. And then I, right. you know, as I'm driving home in my Mercedes, thinking, <laughs> you know, guess what? <clears throat> yeah, I can't be that guy. I can't right. give 20 minutes to some unemployed guy. 
because it's the right thing to do and it'll make him feel better. I've got to get that call down to three minutes, give him some sort of resolution, some concrete positive advice and get the hell off the phone and onto the next call. Right. And right. so, right. you know, that is that that's where that's where the tough part comes, that where the rub is. Our culture and our industry of professional search nurtures Adam one and Adam two. Um, you know, the, you know, Adam one is the people that we want working for us to go getters. But you know, essentially, it is that loss of humility in exchange for accomplishments that often comes at the expense of hubris, right? No now, doubt. I think no the, the top recruiters at Pinnacle, there's there's so much less hubris than I would have imagined almost 20 years ago when I joined. I expected egos out of the room, and there's some of that. You've met them, but for the mm -hmm. most part. Most guys, have, most people there have their egos in check. And I think what Brooks was arguing is that the end results of these accomplishments tend to leave us hungry for more. You know, that, that even after my best years, you know, that, that, that essentially that there was this hole that was filled by material goods and high-end services, which ultimately takes you further and further from honest self-confrontation and character, which is what builds up the moral fiber that allows you to, to come through relatively unscathed when you, well, when you, when you confront your, you know, your personal Watergate, right? Which we all eventually exactly. have. Which and, eventually and I have yeah, to agree right. because, yeah, I mean, I've had my most accounts a very successful career and I've achieved a lot, but every few years, and typically I find even after my best years, my best moments of personal triumph that I, that I find myself with the same song stuck in my head. And it's Peggy Lee's 1969 classic, Is That All There Is? Is and that all there is? Very melancholy yeah. tune. Very melancholy. Right. But read the lyrics. And the lyrics are so prescient. And it, they just, it really, it's like, yeah, is this it? Is that all there is to a circus? Is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is to romance? Right. Is that all there is to billing $850,000? And you're like, right. wow, it's not just that. Now, Again, I don't want this to come off the wrong way because this isn't about God. Although for believers, people that do believe, yeah, that's part of it. It is that in the past, we look to institutions, right? We look to ancestors and friends and relatives for all of that. And today, that most of that has failed us because the institutions, think about the institutions. The institutions are the government. Well, oh, my God. All right, so we can go back to, you know, politicians. And you've got Kennedy and his failings and Nixon and all the failings there. And then Clinton and some of those issues. And then we bring ourselves to Mr. Trump and you know where right. we end up. Where, and then our religious... But let's, but let's jump on that, though, because your second book was the John Meacham book, the new book that yeah. uh, is out, The Soul of America. And that ties together right. what you're talking about, because it does. You know, we do live in the real world and there is some government, but for the people that get... And look, there's people on this on this uh, podcast who are ardent Trump supporters, and I've said to sure. ATD followers for the last two years, uh, while I'm a Democrat through and through and a bleeding heart liberal, wh whoever's president, I want to be successful because I want a successful country and I'm a patriot. But um, right. for the people on the other side who say, these are the worst of times, um, this is incredible that we're going through this, how could this have happened? What Meacham points out in his book is, you know, we've been here before, mm -hmm. and and probably the exactly. best example of that is the McCarthyism of the mid-century, yeah. right? So, so right. what what was yep. the thrust of that? What well, was the thrust uh, of the Joe I mean, McCarthy uh, comparison to Trump? 
Well, because it, that's as close to fascism as we've ever gotten as a people. Right. right? right. Where we allowed some demigod to lead us into, you know, this, this point of almost no return. Um, where we've, we went down this road where we persecuted people of, the, you know, of different faiths and different beliefs right. and different that were, that, weren't, that were, you know, not just communists, but anyone that thought differently than the order. And, and so what he's arguing there, as he does with, hey, um, you know, what was his, Huey, uh, the governor of, of the Louisiana, um, gosh, his name escapes me, but basically that and so many other examples that we have been through this before, we have been through race, you know, racism um, and come through it. We have been through where we have blamed immigrants. There's this Chinese Exclusion Act that was written to exclude China, you know, people from China coming over, period, end of report. Right. It wasn't just limiting right. numbers. You know, we have, after World War I, the amount of racism that existed and, you know, that, that we didn't, you know, we had this backlash against immigrants. So all the things that are happening now, you know, the core, if you were to distill it, is, hey, we have been here before people and the goodness of what we, of who we were, our moral character and our moral fiber is what allowed us to move through that, to understand, you know, at that, that critical tipping point, we would not go into that darkness, but we would go the other way. And see, that's what, that's what I think, that's the nexus of these two books, right? That's where it comes together and it says, look, we've been able to do that because, and I think where that, that, that reinforces the point of what he's saying, is like, look, Brooke says, you know, we, we, when you build, when you confront these issues, you build this moral muscle, this moral fiber, and it allows you to, to do that. And I think the, if, if, we, if we continue to be out of balance, which is another contention of his book, he's not saying we need to go back to, you know, Victorian England and, you know, society right, where right. it's all about this moral ethos, but where we have the, the moral um, and then, the, you know, the character uh, and the resume virtues more in line and in balance. And that will allow us to come through once again. And I do think, yeah, we are at a very bad point in, in you know, with what's going on in the country in general. And I, I believe, though, there is an inflection point, um, and it's maybe November, <laughs> where a message will be sent, <laughs> hopefully, that we've, we have gone too far and we're going to come back the other way. Um, I, I think that I believe in America. I believe in America, the, the idea of America and the reality of America. And I think that we're headed back that other way. But I, I, you're absolutely right. I didn't choose these two books, you know, to read because of me thinking about it. Um, in many right. ways, I think maybe they chose me because what I'm thinking about. And then I heard about the book and I went, yes, I got to read that. I have to understand that. And, and, it, and it gives so much more hope. And so it's a hopeful book, but it does identify, you know, where it talks about, you know, some of the people that, that, you know, the portraits of Lincoln and Grant and Roosevelt and, you know, more recently, Martin Luther King and, and Rosa Parks and John Lewis and Eleanor Roosevelt and all these people that have. And if you think about what do they all have, they all have that character, right? They all, sure. They're all people that we look up to and that we enshrine. And it's not because of what they accomplished. They accomplished, I would argue, um, you know, they accomplished these great things because of who they were. And I think that's the final thing I would tie back into our industry is I think there's two ways to go about it, right? You can be the Adam one guy. You can be, 
build your business based on transactions and just place as many people as you can as fast as you can, right? And I think that you can build a lot of money, but I think you do it in the short term and I think you do it at risk of the long term. Or you can build it over time by not being about closing that deal, but making sure that that's the right deal, the right deal for the candidate, the right candidate for the company. And by doing that, that you build a business based on your reputation. And it's a business that lasts. It's a business that is about repeat business. So it is more repeatable and sustainable. So I think, again, it, it's easy for people to read this book as a recruiter and say, this is BS, man, I can't do this. I gotta, I gotta be about right. my numbers, right? I gotta do that. No, I, I, I have, I think the one thing that I will be most proud of um, is that I have built a business that allows me, and every of my placements allow me to look myself in the mirror and to, to to feel proud of what my kids see in me, um, you know, both when they were small and now that they're larger, when they hear me on the phone putting deals together, when they hear me on the phone and my client is telling me or my client candidate is telling me how amazing the approach that we've taken and how honest and the integrity. And those things mean as much as money. And, yeah, I probably made a little bit less than I could have, but I feel better about every dollar that I've made because of it. So. That's yeah, it. and I think that's a great message to recruiters that there's that the two things that you've you said are in the book, the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues, are not mutually exclusive career. No, and that's hard to remember when you're when you're a super young, aggressive recruiter. Although I'm not concerned about it because when I die, I'm going to hire temps to come to my funeral and cry, and um, <laughs> it's going to be amazing. It's going to be an amazing funeral. Hey. You can just outsource that to China. They have an enormous industry in it, so you're good to go. <laughs> awesome. I, I really right. appreciate your time. I know you're trying to catch a plane. Thank you so much. I got to go. Hey, thanks. And, right, uh, I Take really care. appreciate the honor. Take care. So let's talk to our, our next subject matter expert about what he reads and what he's going to read this summer. We're talking to Michael Petrak of the Pinnacle Society. And just a couple notes um, to make you guys feel bad about yourselves, because that's what my podcast is really all about. Uh, Michael's team has done $1.6 million through June of 2018, and Michael himself has billed $714,000 um, in the pharma industry. Um, so it doesn't sound like you have any time for reading based on those numbers, Michael. <laughs> no, it's it's something I definitely want to make time for. Uh, reading is a is a philosophical pillar of our company. And so, uh, as a group, we read a book a quarter, and we call really? it book club. Yeah. So uh, we've uh, we've accumulated quite a few books that we've read, and I started this several years ago with myself, and then when TMAC Direct was for formed, we uh, kept it going. And so uh, it's really it's really been impactful because um, you know it's it's helped me think more strategically, uh, become a better salesperson, become a better communicator. Um, and so, it, you know, it's, it's been hugely impactful in my life, um, not just in business. There's no question that, um, you know, when I, I do this seminar that uh, I don't know if you ever uh, heard or saw it on the common denominators of top producers. And like so many of my seminars, it's frustrating because there aren't any like there's there's old and young and 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 super uh, educated and not educated um, but one of the things that keeps coming all up is they're curious people, and the curious people read. Uh, but I, I don't think I've, I know anybody who's put it together in such a structured way. So is it like a true book club where you guys assign a book and then have a meeting where you talk about it? Yes, exactly. So we, we uh, have one book a quarter, and we break it down into however many weeks there are. 
And uh, so we break it down into bite-sized reading. And then, and then we have sort of an open forum discussion where we rotate sort of the facilitator of it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a nice way for us not only to enhance who we are as people, but also get to know each other a little bit better because some really personal things come out. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's hard to look at these books just through the lens of business, even though whenever I'm facilitating, I try to make it as much about business as possible, not to put anybody on the spot, but some real life things come out. So. Well, and the way you interpret something you read um, says a lot about your your personality. Like, um, you know, when I go to uh, when I go to Amazon and see some of the feedback on uh, books that I've published, sometimes I'm like, "Dude, what book did you read? Are you kidding me?" But it's it's what we bring into a book. You know, our own personalities, our own situations, and it's, I think any good book or movie is like that too. Like, you can read it five years later. And and take something else out of it because your life's in a different place and you're looking at it differently. So do you choose the books for your team or does everybody get a choice? Well, a lot of times what ends up happening is I start asking people about the books they're reading. You know, people that I really respect because I know that they're sort of doing the same thing. And so I keep a tally of them and and, uh, we kind of go down the list. Sometimes an employee will have a suggestion, but they really rely on me to kind of be the – you know, the the person that's procuring what we may, we may be reading in the future. But I, you know, yeah. take suggestions and, you know, sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. Right. No, I hear you. So uh, we want to spend most of the time on your, on your like most influential book, but some of these I didn't know. So Getting Naked, uh, which is an interesting title. It's That's something yeah. I only do for doctors and not even for all of those. What What is that about? So Getting Naked, uh, so first of all, um, there's a there's uh, this author his name is Patrick Lencioni who wrote yeah. it. Uh we've read a couple of his books, one of which is The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. But Getting Naked is really uh it, it there's no pictures. Um so don't get your hopes up, but uh <laughs> it is it it is a consulting book. And really what it talks about is getting yourself in an exposed state. Uh, breaking down the walls of, you know, pretending you know what you, you know, pretending you know more than you know, or uh, mm-hmm. there's a whole bunch of different examples in there, and it's just they go in there naked, uh, whereas it's like there's there's no pretenses, there's no fluff, there's no showiness. It is just, hey, let's solve this problem together. And I don't, even though I'm your consultant, I don't know everything either, and right. so let's solve it together. And so. Um, with the way that we sell here at CMAC Direct and the way I've sort of do my business is very consultative. And mm-hmm. as a result of that, uh, you know, a consulting book was really, really good. And I really like the way this author writes. So it's a good one. Well, yeah, well, it's obviously worked. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Michael is named um, one of pharmaceutical's most uh, inspiring people among the 100 most inspiring people in the pharmaceutical niche. So I find that Clearly, the people that say I'm super niched also say I take a consultative approach, and those are the ones that get all the repeat business. So uh, that obviously works. And it sounds like one of the other books uh, uh, that you put in there, The Go Giver, which is a great title. If it's in, if the if the title is at all informative of what the book is about, it is it about that whole idea that 
salespeople are generally trained to be takers to, uh, and the way to really succeed is to give in the same aggressive way that salespeople are always historically taking. Exactly right. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is shifting the whole mindset of being a go-getter to being a go-giver, and mm. uh, and it, it talks about five laws in in there that uh, you know when if you're a, a trained a, you know go-getter, you know these these uh, laws sort of seem counterintuitive, but uh, when you really put them into uh, application. There are principles that are really something you can get behind and apply. And again, you know, our philosophy is to take because we're so niched, we um, we take a real long-term approach to every candidate call and client call. And you know, if they're not looking right now or looking for candidates right now, you know, it's not some artsy uh, close or spin technique or anything. It is very much listening understanding, bringing value. The whole point of, like, the main takeaway for me that has helped me be foundational in my business is the idea of value, value and differentiation. Right. So uh, the, there's a big, and they kind of bring this out in the book, that there's a huge difference between value and price. Mm. How, do you get, how do you get to a point where your value is more than your recruiting fees? Because when your value is more than your recruiting fees, they're going to pay your fee willingly, happily, because actually right. for them, it's a steal. So I'm always thinking about ways where I can create more value to my end users because I know in the end, that is going to lead to higher billings. Um, and I'm not doing it for the higher billings, but at the same time, it's, it's sort of like uh, the way I, I watched an interview with the, one of the authors, his name is Bob Berg, great guy. If you want to go onto YouTube, he has some good stuff. But he, this is a quote from him. He basically said that um, your compensation is tied to the value you bring. So if we think about our billings, our billings are just a reflection in right. echo uh, to our value. And so it's sort of like thunder and lightning. They work together. So if, if anyone listening to this podcast wants to increase their billings, and I'm assuming everyone does, one of the ways you can do that is to try to think about how can I increase the value I'm bringing to my market? And, and then he talks about reach a little bit, about how many people you're serving, how well you're serving them. It just it really applies to our business, so that's a great. Book. So so con concretize that from for me for a moment, because as you know, Danny Sarge, who also is, is on this podcast, he's he's I think lived this idea very well because I've had him in my office for mentoring, and while he's trying to make his recruiting calls, um, he'll get calls from people. Um, that are potential clients or potential candidates. And it's literally, I, I told them the most, the most impressive thing I think I've ever seen live is people will call up and go, hey, hey Sarge, what's going on? Meaning literally what's going on on Wall Street today that I should know about? Um, and he's perceived as the guy in the know. And, and that means he's established value long removed from 
from what he's going to charge for candidates and what he delivers. And really, I'm sure you could say the same thing in pharma. I'm sure there are people that say to you in pharma, what do you think I should do here? Or do you think we should acquire this company? Or is this a good strategic idea to hire these people? Is that what you mean by value to be able to say beyond the search fees, I know things about this niche that I can share? Is that an example? That's a that's a, a real life example. From the candidate's point of view, I'm working with companies right before they're about to launch a product or right before as they're sort of gearing up to launch a product. And, you know, for instance, their stock may be low at that point, but because they're gearing up, there's something going on internally. None of, no one knows, but it's a good indicator that good things are happening. Right. So uh, often I get people call me, hey, so what are some of the small companies that are beginning to hire now? And so there's there's some value to that person, not only for their career, but also may, potentially for their portfolio. I don't know if that's what they're doing or not. But mm -hmm. uh, but but also, you know, um, sometimes a person will say, hey, I just got an offer from uh, XYZ company. What do you know about them? What do you, yep. And they use me sort of as a sounding board. And I'm like, whoa, 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 how'd you learn about the opening? And, you know, but at the same time, mm -hmm. I give them, you know, here's the gripes, here's the good, here's the bad. Um, yep. But the, one of the big things, like here's, here's a way that I provide value far beyond what they're paying me. So every person that I pojo or present to a, a company, we call it a pojo. That's sure. um, your MRI course, showing, my friend. Yeah, that's right. Uh, every person that we present to a company, every submittal, I guess, basically we know what their compensation is before we submit them. So mm -hmm. we, we keep detailed records of every person that we submit to a company. Then we take detailed records, of course, of the salary of everybody that gets a job offer. Then we can show the average salaries of the people that are we are presenting, which gives us a greater cross-section of the whole industry. And then we can talk about pay increases. So I give an annual salary uh, presentation and I invite every client, every prospective client, I invite hundreds of hiring managers to come to this free podcast uh, to learn this data. And I give the slide deck out. Now I can charge thousands of dollars for that. And I'd probably get it because it's 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 informative. Sure. But I but sure. I give it away. But but basically, yep. I become the go-to person in their mind for that. And that's the that's branding to its sense. And part of what the go-giver talks about is: Am I serving a greater number of people by doing that than if I were to charge? Yes. And so by doing that, it comes back and folds. And you know, but that's just sort of. The best way to do yeah, it. Yeah, that's an online. awesome example. So, so here's a here's the real big question based on this whole idea of podcast and, you know, the, I put it out in the summer because everybody says, you know, the summer life's easy, the living's easy. Let's let's read, but I obviously uh, would have done it any time of year because I think reading is an ongoing thing for the curious. Is it fair to say that the Go Giver book was read and then you put together this idea of branding or did it just concretize an idea you already had? Uh, I'm just curious to what degree it, it inspired the idea, which is a great idea. Oh, I appreciate it. You know, um, I take a really big view on marketing. Marketing is one of the big, you know, branding and marketing. is so it's such right. a huge, important thing what I do. And so, uh, you know, one of the downfalls to reading so much is you don't know if it's like, 
your thought or if it's someone else's thought or where, <laughs> right. where it kind of came from. It's like you have so many of these great ideas pouring into your mind at all the time that sometimes it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, and, right. it, and it grows, it grows organically through your own lens, you know, but, but, uh, but it, it is such, I think reading just in general, just to talk about that topic, I read every single day. I, I start my day reading off, starting off with reading the Bible. Every day of my life, I start off reading at least 15 minutes in the Bible. Uh, hey, let's let's talk it. about that because I asked everybody what the biggest, most influential book was. And you, uh, and I realized you were sort of tongue in cheek, but you said, hey, is it okay to talk uh, about, to give a, a shout out to the Bible? And and I thought it was funny because I get that, right? Like I'm a practicing Catholic and I can be found at 730 every Sunday at St. Mary's in Unionville, Connecticut. But it is odd how you sort of feel in the normal course of, of life that it's supposed to be like, you know, let's keep that under wraps. Um, and and as a, yeah. but when I read your email, I said, well, sure, we can talk about it. Like it's, you know, but I said to myself, do I read it? And I'm like, no, I have to admit, even as a practicing Catholic, I outsource it, right? Like I, every Sunday it's being read to me and I sort of outsource the, the good parts. And my feeling about the Bible over the years, because I've been, you know, inculcated in it since I was a, a little kid, my feeling about the Bible over the years has become like the movie Titanic. Like I already know how it ends, so I don't watch it. Um, and, and, and I can't, you know, I can't say that I have any sort of true um, command of the Bible. I feel like I've heard all the stories and I could tell you what the stories mean, but I don't feel like uh, very, very few people who even are really observant. I, I don't think there's a lot of people that read it every single day. So talk to me about what that does for you and how you structure that. Okay. Well, I, I really appreciate you bringing this up because it is of the utmost importance and uh, to me. And, um, yeah. You know, and, and not to get into any kind of theology or anything like right. this, but, uh, you know, there are some huge principles. I look at the Bible as not a book of stories, but a, a, an outline of principles. And, and I try to uh, create a very strong relationship with God. And the way I found to do that is I pray, that's me talking to him, and then reading the Bible is him talking to me. And, yeah. and, and so, so that. that's our, that's our two way communication. And like you said, initially about rewatching a movie, like you said about when you reread a book, you're like, wow, I didn't even catch that. Um, yeah. but, but the, the, the word of God is alive. The Bible says, and what that basically mm -hmm. means is as you read it, it means different things to you at different stages of your life. You catch different things. Uh, what you were praying about may be answered in a scripture that you never even noticed before. And so for me, uh, I try to read at least one chapter of the Bible a day, but I also look at it thematically uh, based on quest curiosities that I have about certain things that mean a lot to me. But there are so many principles, Danny, that apply to our business in the Bible. Uh, and, and, uh, and if, and the, the best, the best books that you can read leave you with principles that not only apply to business, but apply everywhere in life. Um, yeah. because you know, for me, I didn't want to be, just be successful in the recruiting business. I want to be successful in every single aspect of life. And, right. uh, and it's a, it's a journey, but I mean, there, there are some obvious principles like don't lie, cheat or steal, 
uh, do on to others and things like that. But here are some other ones I jotted down. Um, there's a, there's a, um, a scripture, Matthew 7, 6, that says, don't cast your pearls before swine. Right. And so, yep. um, you know, and to apply that in our business, what is our, the biggest pearl that we have is our time. And how many times are we casting that pearl before a bad job order? Or right, the swine could be anything that's negative. Right, exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I, so I, yeah. Should, I try to uh, try to avoid that as much as I, I possibly can. And, uh, th- there's a ton in, in the book of Proverbs, but Proverbs sixteen eighteen, pride is before a crash. So right. after you after go you've before done this, fall. Yeah, exactly, exactly right, right. exactly right. So uh, like when I'm t- after you've done this business for a little bit and you've had the same conversation over and over and over and over, you can become prideful a little bit when, like when you're talking to talent acquisition and they're kind of giving you a hard yeah. time. And, yeah. and I have to remind myself, look, man, swallow your pride, bite your tongue, mm-hmm. because you don't want to blow this thing up. Uh, here, right. Here's another one for, for uh, people that are maybe doing like a solo recruiting thing. Proverbs 15:22 says, plans fail where there is no consultation. The beautiful thing about being on your own is, yeah, you don't have to answer anyone. But the hard thing about right. that is, you don't you don't really have a you board don't have of to directors. Answer anyone. Right. <laughs> yeah. So right. so uh, you know that's a good business uh, foundational business principle of saying, hey, you know, maybe I need to get a second opinion. Maybe I need to have a board of directors in my life, people that I I can go to for sound advice. You know, to phone a friend. One more. First uh, Peter three eleven says to seek peace. I know a lot of recruiters that burn bridges everywhere they go, contentious, bridge-dead-naming people. But the people that last in a niche, they seek peace because they know every single person is needed. (laughs) So those are just a couple. I don't want to hit everybody over the head with the Bible or anything. No, no, no. You know, you you remind me that uh, one time I was was – I was wandering around the streets of uh, New York, and I saw that in a bookstore, a big bookstore uh, in the village, uh, Christopher Hitchens was speaking. Now, I knew Christopher Hitchens as a political writer, and I knew he was very aggressive and funny and cynical, and I thought, well, this would be funny to hear him do a book reading. And I went into the bookstore, and it ended up being a debate, and the book he had just published was – I can't remember the name of it now, but it was basically uh, why he was an atheist, um, and he was debating um, uh, uh, some sort of Christian scholar. And and I, you know, it was interesting. Um, and they were going back and forth. And of course, these aren't these aren't positions anybody's going to convince anybody of. But I, I thought it was wonderful that at one point Hitchin said, "Look, you're never going to convince me." Uh, uh, that I shouldn't be an atheist, but here's what I'll give you: everything in the Bible about how to live, you can't beat the Ten Commandments. You can't beat the uh, suggestions for how to live a good life. And we can debate over and over again whether there's some supreme deity overseeing all of it, but you certainly can learn a lot about how to live. And it's pretty hard to hear things like, you know, uh, uh, the Golden Rule, or or not to cheat, or lie, or kill, and not say. Yeah, that's pretty good advice, actually. Uh, that actually would work out pretty well if we all lived moral lives. Uh, no question about it. But what I find is interesting about what you do, uh, I think a lot of people are not willing to go the extra mile to say, because I have uh, a lot of 
friends who say, I, I went to Shakespeare and the, the language was just dead. I couldn't understand it. And it's like, seriously, you don't see any relevance to Hamlet um, in an age of narcissistic people that everybody talks about the millennials being narcissistic. And here's this amazing play about the essence of narcissism and you don't see the relevance. Most people see the language in the Bible and they don't understand in, in, in your case that the swine can can be can be anything. It can be being on LinkedIn too much. It can be a bad job order, as you said. They just don't want to do the work to transpose the old language into its new relevance for you. But clearly, you're willing to do that work, and and it uh, the, the the results speak for themselves. No question about it. Awesome. Yeah, well, thank you. It's uh, it's yeah. really been the most impactful, by far, not even close thing I've read. But speaking of the golden rule. Another good book, just as a quick plug, is The Platinum Rule. That sort of is a spinoff. So The Platinum Rule talks about the different personality types. And the, the golden rule is commonly known as treat, do unto others as you would have do unto yourself. Or you know, right. treat people how you want to be treated. But right. The Platinum Rule kind of spins on that. It says, you know, based on these different personality types, these different personality types want to be treated like they want to be treated. So don't don't treat them how you want to be treated because it might not be how they want to be treated based uh, on their different personality type. It's sort of like love languages. You know, mm -hmm. if, if yeah. you know, if, if expressing love is how I view love, but they want, they, they, they feel love by service. We could be talking different languages. And so right. the, the platinum rule really has helped me to identify a personality type in my client or candidate and adjust. So. Awesome. Michael, this has been so helpful. I, I honestly want to like get off the phone and send an email to my people saying we're going to start a book club. Um, that, that's how cool I think that idea is. But just so everyone knows, um, Michael's entire list will be uh, on the uh, podcast link um, along with uh, Michael's bio and contact information if you guys want to be in touch with them. My friend, thanks so much. No, thank you. This is a pleasure. Appreciate Absolutely. your time. Take All right, care. Thanks, Danny. Okay, so we're saving the best for last. So uh, full disclosure, um, Emily and I work together, and in our office, we're both known as sort of like the self-help meditation, the, the freaks that care about this stuff. Um, I don't know about you, Emily, but I get annoyed that people call it self-help, because um, mm -hmm. then it makes it feel like we're helpless and that we need direction. Um, you know, I don't know why they can't call them PEDs, like performance enhancing downloads or something. Um, mm -hmm. I, but you seem to be into it because I looked at your list of books and a lot of them would be, I guess, under that fuzzy, like self-help thing. So are you drawn to these books? Like, how do you decide what you're going to read? Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I've been, I guess I can call myself a self-help guru. <laughs> I've been a, <laughs> really into all of that since I was a junior in high school. My mom first introduced The Secret to me. So that's when the documentary of right. the book, The Secret, yes. first came out. And ever since then, I was just fascinated by this world of whatever you put into your life, will you'll get right out of it. Um, so I've always yeah. been obsessed with it. And especially post-college, once I entered the, entered the real working world, and I could apply it to big things more than like a test. <laughs> um, yeah, so, right. Um, so that's when I started getting really into it and it's, it's really changed, um, depending on the time of my life, whether it's been more about money, whether it's been about hitting goals or if it's been on the more spiritual side. Um, so really I think it kind of depends once you start looking up one thing, you 
fall into other things. So for example, one of the first books I talked to you about was um, The Universe Has Your Back by Gabby Bernstein. And right, that's the one you're into now, this, right? Right, yes. I love I love everything Gabby Bernstein, but this is by far my favorite book of, by her that I think anyone could read. Um, but I've started getting into yoga a couple years back, and then there's this place mm-hmm. in Massachusetts called the Kripalu Center, and it has all these different major speakers and yogis, yogi masters and all these people go there and then we saw this really pretty girl called Gabrielle Bernstein and me and my sister were like who is this like I want to be like Gabrielle Bernstein she's beautiful she has all those things and then you know come to find this book the universe has her back it was one of her best her number one book and it's a New York Times bestseller and reading it you know it's just it just blew me away and it's really all about you know trusting in the universe and knowing that you know the universe is working for you and not against you and to kind of just change that mindset and it just gave me being in sales um you know as it is a roller coaster of ups and downs it really it makes you feel really good um saying you know what even though i might be on the downhill right now it's going to come back up because the universe has my back and the world is working for me Mm. yeah that's a hard thing to to buy into Mm. I, i remember when i uh I first talked to somebody who had been through uh, the 12-step program, and I, I said, you know, I'm not an addict, so tell me, what is the, what's the essence of the 12-step program? And he said, let go and let God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, wow, it's a good thing I don't drink, because I would have a hard time with that. <laughs> like, you know, because yeah. my whole thing is you never let go, like, like, like I believe in God, but it's like, it's up to me. And yet it sounds like what the spiritual side of this is to just trust that things are going to work out. Right. And I think a way that she, her, both Gabby Bernstein and Jen Sincero, and she has this book called, um, you are a badass. She has a, you are a badass. Yes, love that book. Yep. Money. Yeah. So both her and Gabby there, her name, she goes by Gabrielle in her books, but she goes by Gabby. Um, not that I know her personally, but I pretend I do. <laughs> and, um, so she, what she says is it's just very real. Like she swears and she's like, and then this person cuts you off and you're all pissed off. So it's, It's not like, you know, so heady and airy that you can't relate to it. They're very, very relatable authors. So everything that they're saying or talking about, you're like, I've been there. Like, I totally understand that. And you laugh. So it it, it makes it easier to believe, oh, no, the universe really does have your back. Like, she's telling me real situations that I could easily put myself into and how it has turned around just because of her mindset, really, and realizing that everything is, is working for you. Okay, and so now The Art of Hearing Heartbeats. That's a wonderful title. I have no idea what that refers to. What is that? (laughs) So that's about – so I like to read self-help books, but The Art of Hearing Heartbeats is not a self-help book. It is just a fun read. Um, And I like to sprinkle those in every once in a while because – I, I love reading in general, and they're just very enjoyable. And sometimes it's hard to get through the self-help books. I'm sure anyone could <laughs> agree with that. Right. A lot of, sometimes they say a lot of the same things. But um, The Art of Hero of Heartbeats, it was just about this young boy who was abandoned by his family when he was really young um, because he went – because no, I'm sorry. He, he, he came home one day, and his family was gone, and he went blind. And then it basically tells about his story – about being blind and where his life has taken him and then how he falls in love with someone's heartbeat because he can't see his other senses have heightened and he has this Mm -hmm. incredible sense of hearing and he can actually pick up people's heartbeats. Um, And that's 
I don't want to give too much away because I really hope someone reads that because it's a beautiful love story. Obviously, I cried at the end, but of course, <laughs> that's a really good one. So, do you do um, do you do Audible? Because I hear so many people talking about Audible, and and if you so, is there a type of book that you say, okay, this is an Audible versus mm-hmm. versus a book that you have to read read? Yes, definitely. So I. The Universe Has Your Back and Jen Sincero, those are ones I could easily read-read. Um, but some right. of the other books I had, I had mentioned to you, like The Science of Getting Rich by Wallace, Wallace Waddles, um, TED Talks, The Official Guide to Public Speaking and High Performance Habits by Brendan Bruchard, those I find are easier for me to listen to. So I, not only do I have a long commute, but those can be a bit complex. So sometimes, you know, instead of reading the same paragraph over and over again and thinking about other things, right. you're kind of forced to absorb it because you have nothing else to do but look at the road. Um, or at least that's how I see it, and that's how it affects me. So those kinds of books I listen to, and more of the fun reads are the ones that I read on the beach. or. Interesting. Reading. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think it is just, fair to say, though, I, yeah, but I think part of it is the self-help, the nature of self-help, right? And you mentioned TED Talks. Like, I've read mm-hmm. self-help books and then seen the 18-minute TED Talk and felt like, mm-hmm. I should have just seen the TED talk. Like, like that is like <laughs> yeah. the, the, the book tends to be like extremely redundant. Not so much Jen mm-hmm. Sincero's because she's so much fun to read. But a lot of these mm-hmm. self help books lay out their their major thesis in the first couple of chapters, and right. then spend ten chapters sort of trying to prove it or restate it. And mm-hmm. you know, when you get to my point in life, you're like, I don't have much time for this. I'm just going to read the first three chapters and I got it right and move on. Right. And I also and I feel like I'm ripping off the author sometimes, whereas I can hear the whole book if I'm in the car because I always have another car ride to do. Mm-hmm. I just worry about my absorption when I do an audible book versus reading because I'm used to – maybe I fool myself, but I feel like I'm 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 underlining passages or in my iPad yeah. I'm saving to notes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm, you know, when I think about it, I never go back and read the notes. So maybe I'm just kidding myself, but I've just wondered about the absorption rate of audible, of, of audible books. I don't, I don't know if there's ever no. been any sort of studies on that. Do you feel like you get them when you do the audible um, side? It's a good question. So I don't remember where I heard this, but <clears throat> someone, I had read something or listened to something and I, you know, the, that specific author had said you sh- something like this, you should go back and listen to two or three times. I think it was Jensen Cheryl because you're going to pick up different things every time. So a lot of these audibles, I mean, I just became part of their monthly membership. So I get one every month, but I can't do this as much now because I want to take advantage of it. Um, But I would listen to a lot of these a couple of times. So like Jensen Cheryl's, you are a badass making money. I to date have listened to that seven times because you hear different things seven times because you listen to it. You hear different things every time. Um, the TED Talks one, that one I had to listen to two times because you really do pick up different things. But I do believe on Audible, if it's an entertaining reader, um, you pick up on it and you're just completely entranced. It's like you're watching a movie while driving in your head. Yeah. Um, so like right now I'm listening to um, uh, the subtle art, subtle art of not giving a blank. Yes, read it. Um, yep. Very funny. <laughs> funny book. And uh, the reader is he's so funny that it's just, it's it's very entertaining to listen to. Right. So I think right. that does take a big toll in it. And, you know, the Ted talks one, this one, they're all very good. Um, it's one that's, that's not the case that it gets hard to digest it and remember. So the beauty, the beauty of uh, these things, you know, they're working when 
when they get so far into your subconsciousness. So I was talking uh, to a friend and I was trying to give an example of how there's people in your life, um, you call it being in state. There's people in your life who they don't realize it, but they're trying to pull you down. And Mm. I was trying to give an example and all of a sudden it just popped into my head that wonderful Jen Sincero passage where she says, and I'm assuming it's true, um, it's hard to tell because she's so funny, but she said that if you put a bunch of crabs in uh, a pot to boil, um, once it gets hot, the crabs, one of the crabs will try to get out of the pot because he's trying to save himself, and the other crabs will pull the crab down into the boiling water. And she says that's why it's called being crabby, um, which is funny, but all of a sudden, I remembered that passage. And I mean, I read that book, whatever you recommended it, two years ago. And I'm like, mm-hmm. wow, there's the power of these books. Like, just when I needed to sh- show an example of how people can be toxic, mm-hmm. I had this passage of this book that somehow got emblazoned in my head. And I don't think we realize that we will go back to these things uh, over and over again over time mm-hmm. and that they really do have uh, an impact. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think it's funny, the people that I know you're now the fourth person that I've talked to for this series and all the people who are into self-help also happen to be like the most amazing people and the most awesome people I know. So it's like, maybe there's a link to you want to get better. You care about things enough to examine like your whole life. Uh, like how, why do people think this way? Why do people act that way? All right. Let me give you one last question. I'm asking everybody, what's the most influential, I don't care if it's self-help. I don't care what it is. If there was one book that shaped you in some way, what would you recommend to people? Don't say the secret because I'll, I'll, I'll feel bad. Darn it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Come on. That's well, a young girl's that book. One. Come on. Uh, well, you know what? I always go back to that one because it was the first, right? Cause that yeah. Was okay. The first yeah. One. Never forget your first. Um, right. But, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, so it really is the one that like turned me on to all of it. Um, but I would have to say the most influential besides that it's really hard because I've already talked about them but I and I and it's a tie because of different reasons um okay so I'm probably not answering your question appropriately that's right this is my I'm just curious um, <laughs> which, so this will tell people which one to go to right now like which what's right. the tie between which two yeah so I would say my top two would be um Jensen Chero's you are badass at making money um, yep. And because because I'm in sales, and because that one has helped me so much, um, yep. when I first listened to that, I, that was when it was the turning point for me, I believe. Um, and it just kind of totally shaped money in a different way, like viewing money mm-hmm. and like your ability mm-hmm. to achieve it or to to hold it. Um, and then I think the other one um, would be um, Gabby Bernstein, "The Universe Has Your Back," because as I had talked about to you earlier, I personally do believe that you know, my spiritual practice of meditation and all of that, I've noticed, again, that's kind of been that next level is like, I have a direct correlation between, you know, my happiness and my success and whatever I measure that to be, um, and my spiritual practice. And if I have those two go hand in hand, then I'm just better off overall. And I really wasn't there. And I wasn't at that point in my life until I read this book and it's until I was introduced to Gabby. So I think that... That's because a big endorsement. I'm going to download that book yeah. today. That's a big endorsement. <laughs> I think because of what those, because of what they did to me and, you know, in my life in general, um, those would be my picks. Okay. Fair enough. I think the most impressive thing about 
uh, you is that you put up a $41,000 fee this morning and you didn't even talk about it. That's amazing. Like I would have bragged oh. about it a hundred <laughs> times before I even recommended a book. All right, no, Emily, no, thank you so no. much. Uh, everybody, you All can right, check out you. Emily's blog, Musings of a Millennial Chick, and see her biography online. Thank you.